Amen. If you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, covering verses 12 to 17 this morning. Um, One of the things we've seen in in a study of this letter that's taken us now from the beginning of the year all the way up to this point, uh, much of what we've seen so far has been pretty general. It's been encouraging theology, uh, uh, an explanation of Jesus, who he is, what he did on the cross, and why that changes who we are, why that gives us hope and confidence as we live for him. Much of what we've seen, in other words, could have been written to just about any church anywhere at any time in any place. But in this text, the text we come to this morning, what we see is probably our best look at what this specific community was going through. The, the, the people to whom our author wrote on purpose with these specific words, what it was about their situation that made him think these words were what they needed to hear. In this text, we get a look into that. And what we see is that this community was tired, that they were wounded, that they were under siege and in danger of leaving the faith. And you can imagine what a community under that kind of stress would have been like. Given that communities of Christians under, under no such stress, communities of Christians in America split apart all the time for all sorts of reasons. Can you imagine the stress that this community was under? Under the, 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 the literal physical threat to their, to their bodies that was posed by their faith. Can you imagine the stress they would have been under given the fact that some of their community had left the faith, that some were holding on? What we know from even, even like reading history of times when nations were occupied by a foreign power and the way that those occupied, like in, say, France during World War II, related to each other depending on whether they, they went ahead and accommodated to the Germans or held fast and held firm in their resistance, how there was, all, there was just deep bitterness and, and animosity created based on how you respond when things get tough. You can assume that those same kinds of tensions were in this church while people were deciding whether or not to stay faithful or not. Our author describes them in, this, in these verses as, as those who need to lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees and make straight paths so that what's lame won't be put out of joint, but rather healed. What he's calling for is this community that's torn apart by the stress they're facing to heal what's broken rather than cut it off. He's calling them to come beyond seeing pain as something for which we must blame other people. To see it as something God is working in us to make us holy, to help us to trust Him more, like we looked at last week. To see what's hard about their lives as something meant for their good. That's what we talked about last week. And what we look at this week is a direct conclusion drawn from what we looked at last week. If the things that are hard in your life are put there by God on purpose because He loves you and He won't settle for, for you running after any other false God but wants all of you for Himself, if that's why the things in your life are there, then this is what you do when your community needs healing. Verses 12 through 17 are how you respond when your community needs healing. The call is to, to see the Christian life as a kind of race in which we run it together. 
And we, we've seen this race imagery. It was at the very beginning of the chapter, and now he comes back to it again. Only here, instead of seeing it as like an Olympic marathon where it's every man for himself, it's, it, it's, it looks like a race in which you race together. Almost like, I, I, won't, I won't pretend to understand how this kind of teamwork works, but in NASCAR races, they have teams, apparently. I mean, you can only have one winner of each race, but there are, there are teams, and somehow they, somehow they support each other. Or uh, my understanding is that, is that bike racing is the same way. I don't mean like dirt bike racing. I mean cycling, Lance Armstrong racing. That there's teams there, too, and that even though one person wins the race, focus in on the fact that somehow they're all helping each other. I don't know exactly how, but, but they are. They're, they're, they're working together to minimize the weaknesses of some members and to maximize the strengths of others. They, they see, in other words, the progress of each individual member as, as their progress and the struggles of each other member as their struggles. And that's the way this community is called on to survive in a time of stress, to see the race of the Christian life as a team event to see our responsibility to each other in that light. So that's what we're looking at this morning. A call to heal what is lame because what is lame in others is lame in you if you belong to their body. What I want to do is, is two things. The remaining verses, especially verses, uh, verses 14 through 17, lay out how to approach the life of, of, of a Christian, this race that's set aside for all of us. How to approach that as a team means watching out for yourself in some very specific ways that he gives us and watching out for each other in some very specific ways. I want to unpack both of those this morning and try, to, and, and try seeing this whole text as a call to us as a church to live with each other and for each other in a very particular way. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you found the passage, Hebrews chapter 12, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read? I'm going to read verses 12 to 17. Notice the, the race imagery I mentioned at the very beginning. Therefore, if all of these things we talked about last week are true, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who, saw his, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Like I mentioned, I think that, that, the, that the passage itself is set up for us as a call to a team-oriented race, to see the Christian life as something full of pain and struggle that must be survived by the help of each other. That's verses 12 and 13. Verses 14 and through 17, I think, give us the ways in which we will build our lives and aim our lives if we're going to work together as a team to finish out a race that's admittedly hard and painful. The first thing, I think, in verse 14, shows us how we're to watch out for ourselves, watch out for certain things in ourselves if this is going to work. And I want you, what I want you to notice here 
in verse 14 is that we're told to strive for two things. We're told to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a strong call. If we could, the, the, the word strive doesn't quite get it. It's basically organize your life, like build yourself for these two things. Aim yourself at these two things with everything that you are. Peace with everybody and holiness before the Lord. And what I want you to notice here, what, what I think helps us set up the point of this text, is that these two things, peace and holiness, are the same two things that we were told in our passage from last week God is doing in us through the pain that's in our lives. We were told that God disciplines those that he loves. That sometimes there's something in us that needs to be purged out of us if we're to fully live as the children of God that we are. And that God uses hard things in our lives to expose that, to root out self-reliance in us. And the way that he described what that pain is trying to accomplish is holiness and peace. Verses 10 and 11 spell this out. He disciplines us, speaking of God, for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And now in verse 14, we're told to strive for these two things. We're told earlier that God is doing them in us. Now we're told to do them ourselves. I think that this text, in other words, lives in a sort of tension that's at the heart of the Christian faith and how we follow God. That, that there are things God is doing for us that we're supposed to cooperate with, that we're supposed to run towards, to seek out in our lives, to bring into the center of our lives. C.S. Lewis has helped me in so many ways, and, and one of my favorite sections of his book called Near Christianity is a chapter called, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? Is Christianity Hard or Easy? What he notices is that sometimes Jesus talks about the call to follow him as a call to take up your cross, right? As a call to, to be beaten and scourged and shamed. As a call to lose your life. And sometimes he talks about following him as taking on his yoke, which is easy, as a, as, as a call to rest. There's a real sense in which this new identity that Jesus has bought for us and given to us through through the grace of his Father, once and for all, is given to us so freely that we don't have to do anything to get it. And therefore, it's a kind of rest. You know, we stop trying to establish ourselves. We stop trying to meet some sort of standard apart from which we can't be good enough. And we trust that Jesus is good enough for us. That's a kind of rest. But in a real sense, this new identity that we're talking about is hard and painful because it requires the complete death of what comes natural to us. What it requires is a sort of search and destroy mission inside our hearts to get rid of all self-reliance that still lingers in there. All of us are mixed in our motives and in our trusts, and there's a lot of self, there's a lot of natural still left in us. So even as we try to rest in this perfect and complete gift that's given to us, we have to be renovated of all that comes natural to us. And that is a hard and a painful thing. In other words, it's really hard to rest. It's hard work to rest. To be God's people. To have Him and acknowledge Him as our God. What you might call the goal of the whole Bible. That's, 
That's a call to fully love him, to fully trust him, to fully obey him because he knows what's best and he's worthy of everything. And he will settle for nothing less than a new us, a new identity that goes deeper than the surface, and that is a deeply painful thing to come by. It's hard, in other words. Christianity is easy because it, it's, a, it's a new status and an identity that's a gift from God, but it's hard because it's not possible to claim Christ as an accessory to your life, to meet a set of standards that, that delimit what's asked of you, that once completed leave you free to do your own thing on your own time. You know, there's a lot of associations or pieces to our identity that are that way. If you join some sort of, you know, the Lions Club or whatever, Chances are there's going to be some membership requirements. Maybe you pay some dues. You have to show up for a certain minimum number of meetings, maybe for a couple of goodwill projects in the community. But the Lions Club doesn't own you. It doesn't define you. It isn't who you are. And once you've met this criteria that's, that's necessary for membership and good standing, you're good to go, right? You can spend the rest of your time you know, watching football or doing whatever, you, whatever else you want to do. But our, our relationship to Christ is not that way. It's not this set of limited standards that once we have met them, we can go on living our life, the rest of our life, in the way that we want to. We can be tempted to think of Christianity this way. as just a piece of our life alongside what we do for a living, alongside our obligations to family and friends or leisure. We can think of Christianity as this set of requirements we've got to fulfill, even hard ones, even things that cost us something, but that... Once fulfilled, once you've attended church regularly enough and given a certain percentage of your money, avoided these things and done these things, your life is your own. Christianity is, at the same time, more easy than that approach because you don't have to meet a standard to win God's favor. It's given to you. And much, much harder than that approach Because there is no minimum standard that you can meet that leaves any of your life free to your own devices, your own designs. Here's the way Lewis put it. I love the way he puts this. I'm quoting from Mere Christianity here. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Lewis continues, So Christianity is both harder and easier than what we're all trying to do. You have noticed, I expect, that Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard and sometimes as very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it's like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp. Next minute, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he means both. This is the tension in which our passage is playing itself out. God is working in you holiness and peace. He has planned out every detail of your life to that end if you belong to him. And nothing will stop that from becoming who you are. So strive for peace and for holiness. What we want to do with this, this morning is try to understand what it would mean for us to strive after, to build our lives for, 
to watch out for ourselves in the areas of peace with everybody and holiness before God. Because that's what it's going to look like for us to strengthen drooping hands and strengthen weak knees and to run the race to the end. So let's look at each of those. Peace with everyone, holiness without which we won't see the Lord. Here's how we strive after what God has promised to give us. Hebrews has talked about peace, starting there. Hebrews has talked about peace quite a bit. It's come up several different times in this letter. And almost every time it comes up, what it's talking about is the peace that God has now made with us as a gift to us, right? Peace as a new kind of relationship with God. What, what we had, what had to find our relationship with him before was our rebellion. We were kind of almost like waging guerrilla warfare against our king, refusing to submit to him. And there was, there was, there was hostility between us, a lot like the passage that Stephanie read for us earlier today. And now, in Jesus, God himself has taken on the burden of making peace. And he has, he has accomplished it through Jesus' death. And he has given it to us as a free gift. And now we're told to seek peace with each other. The gift that he'd given to us, this sort of status, has a feeling to it, doesn't it? To know that, that, that peace with God defines who we are. I think it's shadowed in the same feeling of peace that you have with a good friend somebody that you know and trust is for you, with somebody from whom you have nothing to hide and whose approval you have no reason to doubt. It's a gift from God that becomes a reality in this life that, that's, that has a sense to it, a, that you can perceive and, and feel as God purges us of self-reliance. But this same peace that's a gift shapes how we relate to each other as a community. We're told to work at this peace Because, I love the way this one commentator put it, because the church is the outpost of heaven and should be a dynamic reflection. Get this, listen to this. The church should be a dynamic reflection of that peace which is the mark of God's rule. If we are belong to the king who has made peace with us, then how we treat each other should show the world what that peace is like. If we have possessed now this gift that's been given to us, we're gonna, we, we, it will change how we relate to each other in some very real ways. Now, it's, we're told to strive for it, to work at it, because it is really hard work to be at peace with each other. I think it's something that becomes harder and harder anytime selfish humans get together and get to know each other very well. And the more you get to know each other, the harder peace becomes. It's a call to us as individuals, I think, because we're supposed to take the responsibility for making peace onto ourselves. And if our church, will, let me bring this directly home to us, if our church will, is going to survive, then it will be because we all have taken it on ourselves as individuals to work towards peace with everyone else. How many churches have been destroyed because of a lack of peace? You know, we're only two years into this thing, so we've had a, a sunny ride of it so far, but that isn't going to last forever. Because we know we're all humans because we know that we're all selfish to the core, even as God is remaking us, there will be plenty of opportunities for us to, to damage the community that we have because we don't work hard at the peace that this passage is calling for. Because what this passage is calling for is for us to take the things that are wrong with our community, what is lame about our community, and to bring healing there, to not put that thing out of joint, to not lop it off as if it's no longer necessary 
as if we could isolate ourselves from what's wrong, to see ourselves as part of one body where what's wrong with the hand is also wrong with the, with the foot because they all feel the same pain. They all take it on as the same responsibility. So here's what it means for you. You don't have a right to hold a grudge against anybody. It's not an option for you. It's that simple. If you have, been made, if you have had peace made with you, by the God of the universe who you rebelled against, then you lose all right to hold a grudge against anybody. Here's what it means for you. It isn't an option for you to say anything about somebody else that's liable to make that person seem less, that's liable to bring them down in the eyes of the person you're talking to. Even if that person is a good friend, a sort of gossip-free zone, that doesn't exist. You lose the right, you lose the right to say anything about anyone else that is going to bring them down in the eyes of the person that you're talking to. Striving for peace means that even if you have legitimately been wronged by someone, it is your responsibility to breach, to to, to heal that breach, to bridge that gap. It's your responsibility to make it your life's purpose, to incorporate it into your life's purpose achieving peace with that person. And I think we've got to lock in on this call to achieve peace, especially where it's hard, right? Where it's easy to be at peace with people, we, shouldn't, we don't really have anything to worry about. Where this becomes a, a command that hits us hard is where it's really hard for us to accept what someone else has done. When everything in us wants to vent about that person, Right? I think what we've got to do, especially where it's hard, where our consciences are pricked, where, our, where we're sensing that this person is difficult, right, to deal with, what we've got to do is run everything that we say or do or even feel about that person through a grid, asking this, is this thing that I'm thinking or doing or saying about this person, is this thing likely to increase, increase or to decrease peace between us and in our body? Is the thing I'm thinking about this person doing towards this person, saying about this person, likely to increase or to decrease peace in our body. And if you come to the conclusion that it's likely to decrease peace in this body, then you've got to repent. Remember from last week, we talked about, we talked about how, um, how if it's true that the things that are hard in our lives, where we, where we feel pain from whatever source, is God showing his love to us, to purge us of things in us that don't submit to him, that, to, to purge us of, of self-reliance. If that's true, if that's what happens, if that's what God is doing in us, and we said last week that one of the practical ways to embrace that is when we are done wrong by other people, when we experience pain from their hands, we don't first lock in on what they did to us, but we lock in on what God is doing in us because of the pain we're experiencing, even from them, even that's their fault. So it becomes about us and not about them. What we want to look at is what God might be teaching us through what they have done. That's a great way to establish peace because when you do that, you're going to see that, that you're no different from them, that, that though they may have legitimately done something wrong to you, it, has, it holds no candle to what you've done to the one who made you. And, it, 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 and learning to, to look at what God is doing in you before what God needs to do in this life of this other person 
I think is at the heart of what it will take for us to sustain a community of peace. That's what it will look like for you to strive for peace with each other. That's what verse 14 calls for. Now, verse 14 also calls for holiness. And like peace, holiness in Hebrews is often described as a gift, as as, as not so much a lifestyle, uh, as not so much um, things that you do or do not do, uh, but as as a status, as a person that is holy, that's worthy of being in God's presence. That's something Jesus accomplishes for us and gives to us as a gift, and it's all through Hebrews. That's the, at the essence of the gospel. But Hebrews is also calling on us to seek holiness in our lives. It's that same tension we've been talking about, that, that we are one thing in Christ, always, once and for all, completely, but that in reality, in real time, God is also making us what we are. He's bringing it about, making it real in us, largely through things that are hard in our life, through pain, like we talked about last week, through, through God exposing places where we don't trust him in the way that we should. And what verse 14 is calling for is for us to run to and not away from what God is doing in us. If God has given us this status of holiness, then what he wants us to do is to make our life about working to be who we are, to live like we are actually children of God, to run at it and not away from it, no matter how painful it might be. We've got to strive, in other words, to rest on him, to love him more, to trust him more, to obey him more. And I think what this means in in practice is that we've got to be constantly analyzing ourselves. We've got to be constantly looking into our hearts for evidence that we don't love, trust, and obey God fully. It's about running into what God is doing to purge us, about paying attention to what's hard in our lives as a symptom of something that needs to be healed, about something that needs to be removed from our life. Um, there, are, there are a lot of tools for this. One of the, some of the best are simply prayer and submitting yourself to God's Word, just reading it, because it is meant to point us to holiness and to expose where there isn't holiness in us. One of the main tools, though, and because this passage is aiming at, at, at the kind of community we want to build, one of the main tools for this is to get other people involved in your life, to seek out people who love you enough to look very closely at you and to help point out to you areas in which you're not submitting to Jesus. If holiness is defined by completely being set apart to him and trusting in him and loving him and obeying him as one who knows what's best for us, then then what it will look like for us to pursue that is to look for evidence in our lives, not that we have failed on all of these lists of uh, all these items on a checklist, but to look for areas in which we show that we just don't fully trust in God. And we are not often self-aware. We need other people to look at us from the outside and say, you know that thing that you were complaining to me about the other day? That stress that's in your life? Here's what I think it shows about you. I think it means you aren't trusting God in this way or that way. Consider that. Pray over that. See if that might be true. That's how we serve each other as we, as we fight for holiness. And that sets us up for the second, second side to this text, which is how we watch out for each other. Right? So the, if, the, if the verse 14 is about, here's what you should be looking for in yourself if the community is going to be what it needs to be to win this race that is the Christian life. If you've got to make peace at all costs and strive after holiness with everything you've got, then here's what you'll do for each other to make this happen. Watch out for each other. That's verses 15 to 17. Basically, he's calling his community to make sure that nobody leaves the faith. 
I'm going to summarize verses 15 to 17. That's what they are. Take it as your personal responsibility to make sure that nobody leaves Jesus. What may not come out clearly in in your translations, I don't know, it comes out decently in mine, is that we we have this one common verb. Watch out. See to it. Be careful. And then three different things you're supposed to watch out for. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And what I want to do, because I don't think these things come through crystal clear, is I want to take just a brief minute to go over each of those three things that we're supposed to watch out for in each other, to try to give you some sense of what they're calling for, and then I want to wrap up by looking at us as a body and how we could do each of those three things, how we could watch for those three things in each other, what, what it would mean for us. That's what I want to do with the rest of our time. So let, let's take the first one. It's the easiest. At, at the very beginning of verse 15, we're told to watch out that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Some of your ver, uh, versions may say something like that nobody falls short of the grace of God. And I think in that, what we're getting is the same thing we saw way back earlier in Hebrews in chapter 4 where we were told not to go the way of Israel in the wilderness and miss out on the promised land, on what he describes as the rest that God has set apart for his people. What happened there is that they fell short. They failed to trust in God, maybe through apathy, and they just got stuck so that they missed out on, on what God had for them. In, Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 4, the call was to encourage each other so that nobody misses out and falls short. I think the gist of it is, it's a call to keep each other from apathy, to, to just falling short of what God has set for us. It's not so much an active hatred for the things or rejection for the things of God, but just a kind of you know, mediocre, nominal faith that doesn't really latch onto them, that falls short. The second thing we're supposed to watch out for is a little bit more complicated. Verse 15 says, watch out that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't have any idea what root of bitterness means there uh, on the surface of it. I had to do some digging around, and it, it is apparently a very clear citation of a passage in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, that's warning against leaving the faith. What it warned against there was people in Israel running after other gods. And he called that running after other gods a root of bitterness that causes trouble, that defiles the community and brings it down. So I think it fits with what we've seen in Hebrews a lot, that we're supposed to watch out for each other rejecting the gospel. A kind of, I think under the surface, what, it, what, it's, what it's condemning, what it's calling for us to be careful of, is a hard-heartedness that just grows cold to the nature of the gospel, that doesn't want it anymore, that doesn't think it's true or trustworthy, and that therefore moves on to some other option. We're told to watch out for it because it could... In, in, in one person, it could spread like a disease to others in the community. So we're called to watch out for that and to protect against it. And then the third one is the, is the hardest one, I think, to understand, especially on the surface. This is the one that calls us to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, and then cite some of the things from Esau's story. And the reason this one's tricky is not that it focuses on sexual immorality, I mean, that, that's a common enough thing for the New Testament to be concerned with. And in, in fact, this letter goes there in the next chapter, in chapter 13, that we'll look at in a few weeks. What's weird about it here is that there's nothing in the story about Esau that suggests sex had anything to do with his abandonment of God's promises. 
The best explanation that I read is that what's intended here is not literal sexual immorality, but a kind of spiritual adultery. It's one of the most common images that the Bible gives, especially in the Old Testament, for leaving, leaving the promises of God for idolatry, is that it's a kind of marital unfaithfulness. That God has married himself to his people, and his people have, in theory, married themselves to him. And that to go after some other God is to break that marriage covenant. It's to be guilty of adultery. And that's exactly what Esau did. It fits well with what the story tells us, that he, he comes in from hunting and he's, he's starving. And his brother Jacob is making some delicious soup and it must smell really good. And he feels, Esau feels like, I'm going to die anyway if I don't get something to eat. So I'll trade you my birthright for a bowl of that soup. Now, that's, that sounds maybe innocuous enough on the surface, but what you need to understand here is that what Esau was doing is trading away his stake in the promises of God. What he's saying is the promises of God are not worth anything more than a simple meal. It's an act of idolatry. He's traded God for something that seemed more pleasurable, more fulfilling. So it fits. If that's what this this third thing we're to watch out for means, which, which I think it does, it fits with the other two. That really, these are all just slightly different spins on the same thing we're supposed to watch out for in each other. And that is apostasy, leaving the faith, rejecting Jesus. We're supposed to be sure that people don't reject him out of apathy or out of hard-heartedness and rejection of the gospel, explicit rejection of the gospel, or out of trading in the gospel and all of its promises for the pleasures of this world that don't last. That's how we're supposed to watch out for each other. And that's how these, this call to see to it, to watch out, comes home to us, I think. Here's what it would look like for us to do this well for each other. It would mean protecting each other from apathy by spurring each other on to love and goodness. That's almost the exact language used in chapter 10 of Hebrews, where we're told to keep each other faithful in our pursuit of Jesus by getting up in each other's business. Right? The language there was basically, could have been translated, exasperate each other, right? annoy each other towards love and good deeds, towards living as those who are owned by Jesus. I think that's what's called for here. See to it that no one just through apathy, through not realizing that they've faded away, that they aren't running hard after Christ, to make sure that no one gets there, stay up in each other's business, spurring each other on to holiness, like almost with a, with a godly sort of cattle prod, right? That's the image that we've been given. Preventative care is the idea. Before it gets to rejection of the gospel, we've got to be spurring each other on past apathy what it would look like for us to see to it that no one falls prey to a root of bitterness if what that means is a hard-hearted, cold rejection of the gospel. What, the, what it would look like for us to do that is, first of all, to seek healing for what is lame. That's what we've been seeing throughout this passage. What it, what it wouldn't mean, in other words, is for us to see that someone's struggling, that, they, that their faith is cold, that they're, that they're wavering in their commitment to Jesus and just sort of cut them off like a cancer. That's not what it means to be a community of healing, to heal what is lame. What it would look like is patience and grace towards them. It would mean 
It would mean seeking to explain to them in personal terms how the gospel is proving true in our lives, how we're savoring it and appreciating it. It would mean working with them over time to prevent a hardening from which they won't come back, a hardening that could destroy others. It will mean being quick to hear and slow to speak, but willing and able to speak where it's needed. What it would look like for us to protect each other, to watch out for each other so that we don't trade in the promises of the gospel for the fleeting pleasures of this life, like Esau traded in his birthright for a single meal. What it would look like for us to do that for each other would be to celebrate constantly the power of the gospel in our lives, publicly celebrate this with each other, to constantly be watching each other's lives and pushing us to find satisfaction in Jesus and not in the promises of the world. It would look like us inconveniencing ourselves around each other, striving for building life so that we're in each other's lives to know each other and what we need and to be able to speak the truth of the gospel into it, into that. Basically, the call in the words of this text is to watch out. The question for us is, are we, are we watching out for each other? Have we built our lives to make this work? Here's the thing I want you to leave with. My faith is your responsibility. My faith as a member of this church is your responsibility as a fellow member of the church. It's your responsibility to preemptively and preventively protect me from apostasy by driving me deeper into the gospel. You get that? Let me say that again. This is what I want you to leave with. The call of this text is to be a community of healing where what's lame is not cut off but healed. And that will mean you seeing my faith as your responsibility. It will mean you driving me into a deeper appreciation and love for the gospel. May God help us. Father, we want that kind of community. We've experienced it to some extent and loved it. We savored it. But we know that it is never fully secure if we do not strive after what you're doing in us. And so we ask you to help us to strive for peace with each other as it relates to us, to strive for holiness apart from which we won't see you, and to watch out for each other with everything that we are, to pay attention Help us to do so with grace, with wisdom and insight and courage. And keep us faithful because of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.